Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast. My name is Dr. Lillian Sue, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Stanford Children's Hospital. And my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Today, Lily and I have the opportunity and the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rick Oye about how to build a positive culture. All right. Yeah, I'm Rick Oye. I'm a pediatric cardiac surgeon at the University of Michigan. Um, some of the hats I wear is I'm the section head of pediatric cardiovascular surgery and the co-director of our heart center. That probably describes what I do for most of my day job anyway. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really wanted you to share with all of our listeners the origin story of the Heart Center at Michigan because I found it really compelling and powerful and wanted everyone to benefit from hearing from it. If you go back to when the program really started, which was with Ed Beauvais and Ami Rosenthal in the early 80s, and a lot of the credit will go back to them too for culture with the relationship that they had, the friendship they had, and the type of environment that they that they fostered when they first started the program. But to get back to your, your question, they had, of course, wanted a heart center when they started. And this is, of course, in the 80s when the idea of centers and institutes and, and things like that was sort of in its infancy. And really nobody did that or understood what that really meant. We're, especially at Michigan, we're a very traditional academic center. We are siloed in our departments and we were a med school before we were a hospital and all that sort of stuff. And so they said, well, we want to have a heart center. And they said, well, no, you can't have a heart center. Those, we don't even understand what that means. But you can have the name, the Congenital Heart Center, University of Michigan Congenital Heart Center. So they had it by name, um, but that was about it. And then when John Sharpie, who's the head of pediatric cardiology, my uh, co-worker and co-director, good friend as well, which helps a lot. When he and I became the section head uh, and division head, respectively, of our in our areas of pediatric cardiology and pediatric cardiac surgery, we decided that we wanted the same thing. And of course, kind of went and said, you know, we'd like to be more formalized as a heart center. And again, they said, no, that's just not who we are. We, we don't do that at Michigan. It's just not our thing. We're academic. And so uh, what we did was we just started acting like a heart center. We decided that we we could act like a heart center and just start whenever we could share resources and work together as if we were a center. Sort of the anecdote is, and this is actually true, I hope no one from Michigan is watching or listening, but uh, we we actually literally printed up letterhead that said uh, University of Michigan Congenital Heart Center. And we took, at the time, CS Mott Children's Hospital had a separate emblem from the Block M Michigan Medicine. And we put that on the top and we put congenital heart center and our dress and all that sort of stuff and just started quote unquote acting like a heart center. I'm a little bit nervous about saying it is because Michigan controls their branding extremely carefully. For instance, they won't even give you the font for what's on your letterhead. They dictate how your card looks and all this sort of stuff. So totally not allowed. But went ahead, we literally printed up letterhead and started acting like a heart center. And then a couple of things happened that put us on the map. Um, one thing is that John and I, you know, it's almost 15 years ago, decided was that we were not going to be able to run our heart center um, in the way that we wanted to with just things like federal funding for research. So we decided that philanthropy was going to be a really important part of the heart center. So what we decided, uh, uh, sitting on his deck drinking wine, I'm sure, was we'd have a golf outing because we both like to play golf. And so serendipitously, it happened to be 2007. So it was the anniversary of the 1997 Michigan Football National Championship, and a bunch of the athletes were coming back. They come every Thursday, all the different athletes from different sports come every Thursday to Mott. 
And a couple of them who are quite famous, Steve Hutchinson, who was Defensive Player of the Year, Frank Greasy, who's a quarterback, and Bob Greasy's son, um, all Michigan alums, uh, and eventually Charles Woodson, so that they wanted to do something for Mott. And so they got hooked up with us. And then really with one, actually two uh, development officers, John and I, and this was really grassroots. I mean, our wives were going door to door downtown in Ann Arbor getting restaurant cards. And the thing I remember is we had a live auction. Someone had donated a rail trip in Rail Canada. And I remember pulling images off the internet of Rail Canada and making the slides for the live auction. And then during the live auction, I was sitting backstage on my laptop, writing down people's names as they won the live auction so that we could have it immediately afterwards. So, I mean, this is serious grassroots stuff. And the first year we made about 250,000. And the third year we made a million three. And uh, so that kind of put us on the map. And then the other smart thing we did is we were building the new children's hospital. So we gave half of all our profits to the hospital to build the new children's hospital. And so it went from, you know, a heart center that you can't have. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, the heart center just gave us $750,000 or something like that towards the building of our hospital. And a couple other things, we developed a research program, which is another thing they told us not to do. Our departments were like, oh, we have a different vision. And we're like, well, we're going to build some clinical research anyway. And then you go from something that they said we couldn't have to last year, we put out something like 150 papers, abstracts, presentations from a relatively small, really heart center. I mean, it's big in the world of congenital, but it's small, you know, in the world of the entire university and entire medical center. So very, very active. And then people would say, oh, yeah, go talk to Congenital Heart Center about MCORD, which is our research place. And these are all things, like they said, that we couldn't have. So I guess the long and the short of it, a lot of what we have done has been, I wouldn't call it entrepreneurial. That sounds like too much of a pat on the back, but it's more natural or intuitive and less about, I mean, I don't have an MBA or anything like that. It's the uh, ask forgiveness and don't ask permission is probably more accurate than to try to pretend we have some greater knowledge of business management. So that's the long story behind an even longer story, I guess. I am always so struck by the fact that you were told no, and you're like, I'm not going to receive that. I'm going to collaborate, bring my community together, work my butt off to make this happen, and turn right around and to the very people that told you no, give them half of everything that you just work so hard to fundraise. And that sort of spirit of generosity and community, I feel so compelling. Do you think those were some of the key reasons that helped you guys get established and successful? Or how? Did, why do you think that other people fail and you guys were able to? Well, I mean, I think, you know, nowadays with all the business speak, you call it pivoting, right? They say, no, you can't do it. So you can't have this, you can't have that. So we're just going to print letterhead, you know, we're going to find a way. Uh, there's a, I went to Penn undergrad and there's a, a famous saying over one of the really old buildings that says, we will find a way or we will make one. And I, I find that compelling, you know, that, that sort of attitude to be particularly compelling as well. But we didn't give the money to the hospital because we thought it was going to be a means to an end. We gave the money to the hospital because it was the right thing to do. So, you know, I think that there's a subtle difference there. It wasn't a means to an end. It's just how we are. This is what the Heart Center is all about. That is, we're a part of a greater community. We, you know, we rely on all of our colleagues in all of our different specialties. And I think we really feel that we are all working towards something greater 
than even just the heart center. What I found really striking about the way you described that entire process was it seemed that initially at first you were at odds with what Michigan's vision of academic was. And then in the end, you actually become this academic powerhouse within our community. Michigan is certainly known for that. And so I was just wondering how you maintain such a position of feeling abundance. I think people talk a lot about if you come from a place of abundance versus from a place of scarcity, where people who come from a place of scarcity just want to hold on and to control everything while they have it. But the way you described even giving half of it back to the hospital really reminds me of someone and a culture that comes from a place of abundance, especially in this era where everyone's trying to claim what's theirs and to hoard it. Where do you think that fundamentally comes from? And where do you think that Michigan culture grows from every day? I would say, first of all, we don't come from a place of abundance. We are really underfunded in a way, I, I would say. We are, even just if you look at salaries, we are not paid anywhere near our colleagues. And we don't have a research endowment. We have no endowment, zero. So everything that we use every year, and MCORD is now about $1.3 to $1.5 million endeavor a year. Um, whatever we don't bring in through funding, we have to raise every single year. We're strictly hand to mouth. So it sounds hard to believe that we don't have an endowment at all within the Congenital Heart Center or within Mott Children's Hospital, in fact, that feeds the engine just through earned interest. Um, so it doesn't really come from a place of abundance. And maybe it is, some of it is that it does come from a place of sort of hunger and necessity. John and I knew we weren't going to run the Heart Center, like I said, in the way that we wanted to. We, we wanted every fellow to have a $5,000 to use towards research. And that you can't, you can't apply for an R01 for $5,000 for every fellow. And that was, our, there's our application. That's not going to go very far. So I think in some ways it was the lack of abundance that helps as far as the wanting to share in anything that we do have. So I'm from the East coast. I grew up in New Jersey. So I can say that the Midwest is different than the East Coast or the West Coast, as for that matter. I mean, the sort of the stereotypic nice Midwestern person, and it's true. Uh, the people here are nice. There are downsides to it. We don't like to toot our own horn. You know, we kind of ran under the radar for a very long time, I think, compared to some of the other centers on either coast. But I do think there's a little bit of a different feel here than from when I went to school on the East Coast or grew up on the East Coast. You know, so this anecdote is not medical, but you know, when I first got here, I'd be like at the grocery store and the, the clerk would be like making conversation with people as they checked out. And I'm like, can you please just check us out? You know, this is my East Coast self, you know, stop talking and start start scanning. You know, but, um, you know it, it is a, a little bit of a different feeling here. And I think that that's part of it, too. And because of this sort of not tuning our own horn, being from a different area than, say, uh, you know, we're not in the same neighborhood as CHOP in Boston, for instance. We're not in, you know, out of Stanford with UCSF or in L.A. where there's several programs as well where you have competitors there very nearby. So we never really had anybody to com uh, compete with directly. And so I think that we were always sort of seen as the quote unquote nice program because we didn't have any, any immediate uh, competitors or people to have conflict with. 
you know, if you look at things like collaborative research, you know, we're known for collaborative research here at Michigan, bringing people together, you know, was because, you know, there may be certain centers on the East Coast that can't work together, that won't work together. Much of that's historic now. But when we first started doing collaborative research, there were centers, East, notable East Coast centers that could not work together. Um, but if you put us in the middle, then it makes it a lot easier. So I think there's a number of things like that that made it easier for us to sort of getting away a little bit from what you're talking about sharing, but be sort of a center of collaboration and have this feeling of that we're like the friendly program. The U.S. News and World Report came out and we three are all at centers. I think Stanford's 21, Atlanta's 19, and I think Michigan is 26. And while I think we all agree that there is this need for transparency, sometimes the goals of U.S. News and World Report may not actually align with people who are at an individual center believe should be the goals of their heart center. And as a leader at one of these centers, how do you reconcile having your own vision with your heart center of the purpose that you believe you should serve versus what gives you the most points on US News and World Report? And how do you kind of rally the team when they see these numbers come out and perhaps you even get questions from parents like we do here at Stanford about our ranking. I just wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah. So with U.S. News and World Report, there's really, so that you've touched on both things. One is the rankings and what do they mean and what do we do about them? Well, they're important to us. I mean, nobody wants to drop in rankings or be low in rankings, but as we all know on, on this call and everybody who's going to be listening, that it really does not reflect the quality of your program at all. The things like reputation score, you know, we're top five in reputation score. That means more to me than where I am on on the list. So the, as you well know, and people I'm sure on listening to the podcast will know, the results they use for outcomes, for instance, are not risk stratified, which is why you see very small programs uh, that are very highly ranked. And you say, you know, we have different goals and U.S. News Report, World Report, their goal is to sell advertising and sell magazines. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not meant to be said in a way that makes us better than they are. I mean, that, that's what they do. That's their job. So it wouldn't be good to have, oh, look, all these are the same. <laughs> look, all, none of these are statistically significantly different. These programs are actually, in reality, just about all the same. And... Um, so that doesn't sell many magazines. I do understand that they have a different job than us. So I, I don't get mad at them. I think it's unfortunate they don't listen to their own. We have members of our faculty on their scientific review committee, and they tell them, you know, this is what you really should do if you want to have valid results that are statistically significant. Um, but they're, they're, of course, they don't want that because they won't find differences, which is again, which <laughs> defeats the purpose of having a list. I mean, I think that's part of it. And the other important piece is people in the heart center, some people will get upset. Well, how can we drop to two levels? And uh, so, yes, we are constantly having to manage that and explain, you know, what this means and what it doesn't mean. And that's just part of being in leadership. It is a bit galling sometimes because it's like this is U.S. News and Report is, as we know, just doesn't reflect at all your quality of your program. And then you have to be scrambling and explaining to everybody why it's not. It's sort of unfortunate that way. It is what it is. And you know, things change. 
can say, you know, we, we don't have this certain radiology certification. And it would have changed, like, I forget, like 5.5 places or something ridiculous like that, just to have this one certification. All kinds of little things like that to try to explain to people. But I think you're right. This does upset people that feel like they're working hard. They feel like we're whatever, a top five program. And then it comes out, we're 26. You know, it's so it, it can affect people adversely. So, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay with it. We'll help them get through that. So how do you help them get through that? Whether it's a ranking or whether something happens to the program or to the community, how as a leader, as a program, do you deliver and and sort of really nurture um, a cohesive culture that you want it to be, that whoever's in leadership that agrees like this is what we stand for. How can we infuse this into like the daily grind of everything, not just like something that's written up on the wall? Yeah, so it's sort of two pieces. Uh, there's the immediate problem, right, which is sort of what I described. You got to give them the facts. You know, we're pretty transparent all the time about our quality and safety. And people know what our results are and just kind of have to remind them of, you know, this is all the stuff we do to make sure that we're a good program because most of them are concerned about patient outcomes is a lot of it, right? They want to feel like we're really helping kids and having the best outcomes we possibly can for kids. And so part of it is work all along, which is every quarter when we have our, what we call the MCHC or Michigan Control Heart Center all meeting, we always have a segment on quality and safety and the things that we're working on, the different projects we are, where we are with outcomes. So that's sort of a backdrop to kind of get everybody into this mindset that we are watching the ball and that we do here are our outcomes we are keeping a close eye on our outcomes and so that's sort of the background that i think lays the foundation for helping to reassure people to know that there is a process that we do think about it and then specifically we just had a meeting and we met with all the leadership and said here are your talking points here are the facts that you can disseminate so we're all and we're all reading from the same hymnal that people are saying well here's the facts you know we are I think the most meaningful thing is we're top five in in reputation amongst all our peers and things like, well, here are the facts. This is why the results aren't like this. These are some of the things. These are the differences. I mean, the differences are like, you know, tens of points to be several places different. You know, we remind them that the result outcomes are not risk stratified. For instance, surgical outcomes are not risk stratified. We show them what our results are. You know, we have our mortality this year. Last year was 2.1% overall. This year it's 1.9 so far. Since we put in place a lot of quality and safety initiatives, you can actually see on the graph it just dropping and dropping and dropping to these are historic lows for us. You know, our last normal mortality was 2.9%. So over the past like five years. And so those are the kind of things, those are sort of almost like the eye candy that you can throw out there that sort of helps people oh my gosh, that's really good. I didn't know because they don't know that. They don't know that our mortality so far this year is 1.9%. And they don't know necessarily that our normal mortality over the past, I think, five years is 2.7 or 2.9%. Those are sort of little things you can throw out to try to pull people back from the edge. But really, the probably the most important thing is having a culture where people feel like, yeah, you've got your eye on the ball. You know, We're not as bad as whatever U.S. News and World Report says. Yeah, I didn't mean it just to like focus on rankings. It, it was just more in general a statement, like whatever you and leadership decides, like this is our mission, vision and values. I remember you saying one time, 
uh, correct me if it's wrong, but like down to even the receptionist knew, you know, what the institution stood for, what the heart center stood for, which I was like totally blown away by that every person there really understood. And they walked in with that sort of level of intentionality and transparency. And that really just seemed like off the bat, a great way to align everybody in the same values. Yeah. We hope everybody was working for some greater vision and our vision and mission. Do we do things like orientations? You know, we have a recording orientation for all new employees and, you know, nurses don't work for us. We can't force them to come, but many of them do. Um, Any of the new employees that come in, we tell them about the vision and mission and our core values and basically just want them to feel empowered. Basically, we tell them, listen, you know, if you talk about receptionist, the person who works in outpatient check-in, I tell them, you know, I don't work in outpatient check-in. I don't have any idea what works and what doesn't work. I said, but you do. And so part of your responsibility is to come to me and to tell me what's going on and what's working or not working. And then my job is to try to fix it. And also to be, to feel that you can take initiative on your own, that you can make change in your area. We definitely want every person to feel responsible for themselves and to hold their coworkers responsible also. So I think that's maybe a little bit more what you were getting at. And that process has fundamentally changed a lot of the things that we can do in the heart center, because now there is enough of a, of a critical mass of people that feel that way and have the right, the quote unquote, right culture that we're able to do stuff like the analogy I gave, I think, when I was visiting Emory was that we can now push decision making downstream. Our old org chart used to have, you know, leadership at the top and maybe the executive committee, you know, coming in from the side as advisory. And then it went down in the different service leads and then down to and so on and so forth with leadership at the top. Our new org chart has the patients in the middle and then everything branches out from the patients. It's not really a wheel, but sort of like that's with spokes coming out for each different each different discipline and how they affect the patient and leadership, meaning John and Christine, who's our lead administrator, and I aren't even in that org chart. We're floating on the outside as facilitators to that. We don't really insert ourselves in any particular place. And good example that I, I've given before is that one time the head of transplant came to me, the, one of the pediatric cardiologists, and said, listen, so we want to do DCD, non-heartbeating donors. And um, I said, okay, that sounds great. Come up with a plan um, and bring it back and we'll take a look at it. And so he, and this was when we were in our old hospital and we were canceling cases right and left. And he came back and said, listen, I thought about this and we talked about it as a team and it will probably increase our volume about 20%. And he said, right now with the amount of volume we have and the amount of cancellations we have, we decided that that was not in the best interest of the heart center. So they were able to put their own desires and the desires for their, not in their program, but I'm sure their own personal agenda and put that below the the needs of the heart center. So I think that's an example of how once these things happen and people, you can trust people to really work towards the best for the heart center, then, you know, you can do stuff like that, like push decision-making downstream and trust people to do quote unquote right thing. Yeah. I think the issue of trust is so important when you are allowing people to make so many decisions downstream and I wanted to talk specifically about this video I saw on the Michigan website about when you talk about the privilege that you have and the sense of responsibility you have when you meet with parents, sometimes prenatally, 
and you're talking to them about their to-be-born child and you form this bond and you take on this ownership about caring for their child and what a great privilege that is. And you're really saying that on behalf of the entire Heart Center. And I wondered always about our more junior surgeons who may have less trust, less experience with certain team members. You alluded to the fact that you are really good friends with the co-director of your Heart Center. And so you have that sort of level of trust in him and his vision. And you've probably you've been at Michigan for a long time, so you know many of the team members. But when new members come on board, or let's say it's a junior surgeon in your program, and they have just operated on a child, they've looked the parents in their eyes and told them that they will take care of this child. And then at the same time, that same surgeon has to hand over care to a team of ICU people who may switch every 12 hours. And I often feel really empathetic to that person, but that must be really difficult to hand over that sense of responsibility to a group of people, many who may be new to the team on any certain given day. And I'm just wondering how you approach that philosophically or maybe even on a practical level. Yeah. Um, so just to give people some background uh, at Michigan. So at Michigan, we are a closed ICU, I mean, truly closed ICU. Uh, so that when I finish the operation, we do our checkout and then I walk away from minute to minute care and it is taken care of by the ICU. Um, we do not even have any formal surgeon ICU rounds every morning, for instance, like most centers will have. I mean, the ICU is in charge. Then a lot of times, most of my rounds are social rounds. I'm just there to see the parents and you know talk to them. But I totally trust them to take care of the patients when things rise to the need to talk to me, they do. I trust them to do it. Um, there's a couple things that make that easier. One is that we are fairly inbred in that or most of our physicians trained at Michigan. So they do it the Michigan way for better or for worse. I think sometimes it is not great, a great thing, but we do have some infusion now of people that trained at Michigan left and then came back, I think, which is maybe a little bit more healthy. But that is background is how our ICU works. Now, to get to your point, yes, it, I think it is difficult for junior surgeons, in particular, to use your example, to let go. A lot of it has to do with the personality of the individual, frankly. Um, some people find it easier to do than others. I think everybody struggles a little bit with it. And to be perfectly transparent, I have done onboarding well and I have done it poorly. And I think that. What I appreciate now is probably more what I just said is that different people have different abilities to turn over care of their patient. And um, I mean, you can see it in everybody, whether it is an intensivist or um, an echocardiographer or a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, people have different levels of need to be, I wouldn't say in control of, but different levels of what they feel is important. Whether your patient's on PEEP of six or a PEEP of four, whether that really makes a difference. Some people feel like, oh, that, that makes a big difference. And um, so I think some of it is personality. And I think that as I help surgeons transition from fellowship into attending hood, um, that's something personally, I think I need to, pay, need to pay better attention to. We tend to sort of use our own experience, I think, and expectations of how other people act. And I'm a pretty laid back person um, by nature. But I think to answer your question is, we have to help guide them through. But fortunately, 
most of them have trained at Michigan and know the Michigan way, but still it's, it's harder for some than others. I mean, you guys are such a phenomenal program and really known for your excellence and definitely for your culture. I think everybody thinks of Michigan and it comes to mind. Do you have any advice if there is a place that is struggling with culture or they're trying to focus on turning it around or maybe healing a fractured relationship, what would be the high yield actionable things that they could do to get momentum or get started? It's got to start with leadership. I mean, because many of these are going to be very traditional top-down sort of organizations where the leadership is, it may be benevolent monarchy, but (laughs) tend to be um, very top-down. And so the leadership has to really buy into this, that this is something that they want and have to lead by example. I mean, if the leadership at any individual institution, they are not good, I don't want to say good people, but they are not the things that you need to have good culture, transparent and and um, empowering and respectful and all those things that are sort of the core values, I would say. And again, other people have heard me say this, but probably my favorite is positive intent. If you don't have a leader embodies all that stuff to start with, you got a long road to hoe. And so I think first thing is it has to start with leadership. You have to believe it. You have to believe that culture is important and you have to uh, lead by example. To be honest, you know, when I first started, I didn't necessarily, quote unquote, believe in all this mission and vision stuff. I mean, I'm a surgeon, right? I'm, I'm not like into this soft stuff, um, this touchy-feely mission, vision, all pulling together. But I have become enlightened and have totally drunk the Kool-Aid on it. And so, I mean, I believe it. I've seen it and I have seen how important it is and how it can really change things with a backdrop that we always had really good culture because for instance, if you look at relationships between cardiology and surgery, which can sometimes be strained, I'm going back to Ami and his wife, Prue and Ed Beauvais and his wife, Linda, they were all very close, really, really close friends. And so they had a very good professional relationship. They liked each other, you know, and they worked together. They were just good people. They were nice people. And so they would never have been confrontational in the first place. But I mean, the culture goes way back to that. So we had a lot of a strong foundation uh, to begin with. And so that's helpful. And again, the other thing that's nice about Ann Arbor is that we're a town. I mean, we're 120,000 people, which at any given time, probably half are students. So we're a little town. And, you know, John Sharpie lives... I don't know, half a mile from my house. There are four other cardiologists besides John who live in my neighborhood. Many of our kids all grew up together or babysat for each other. Uh, Jeff Sampy, who's one of our cath guys, lives literally five houses down. And my daughter was just babysitting for his younger kids a couple of weeks ago. So we are all very close to each other. We're socially close. You know, I play hockey with Carly Pfeiffer's husband, for instance. You know, so we're a close person to begin with. So it makes it a lot easier to when you're going to work with your friends every day. You know, if you look at Columbia, that's a good example. One partner could live in New Jersey. One can live on Long Island. One lives in the Manhattan. One lives up in Westchester County. When you could be two hours away from your partner. So I think we do have other advantages that are distinct to this area. A strong foundation built by Ami and Ed and just that we're all neighbors, we're neighbors and friends, and we just happen to work together at the Heart Center. 
So that, that really helps a lot. So I guess that's not very helpful for replicating. <laughs> no, you know, I was actually, I was marinating on your other thought. I kept thinking about the model that you said, like how leadership has changed over time, you know, and it, you were talking about at first it was like top down and you were sort of bringing this vision to the center. And then by the end of it, it's changed to like everyone carries it. And I, I just keep thinking about something you said a, a few minutes ago, how not only it has to come from leadership, but you were, you know, in the beginning referring to really like empowering people to take initiative. And I feel like almost ownership of their contribution, no matter how small or big to carry the greater vision. And I feel like that has to go a really long way in each person feeling like they can meaningfully contribute and uphold this institution and, and maybe shift that model from like top down to to each person um, being responsible for that. I don't I mean, know. It's a really, I'm just thinking about it as you talk. <laughs> I'm going to say the, the other thing is to understand this is a really long journey. I mean, John and I started with a small group that we wrote our mission and vision, and that was almost 15 years ago now. So this is a long time coming to where we've gotten to, to where we are in a thousand little steps. You know, we used to do the so-called gimbal walks twice a month, we'd go to a different section, John and our lead administrator at the time was Stephanie, and I would do gimbal walks, we would go down to the cath lab, you know, and in a gimbal walk, you go and basically you ask questions, and you observe what's happening, and ask, you know, what's working well, what's not working well, and then you have to go try to fix them. And so it's, it's a thousand little steps like that, um, that have gotten us to where we are. So it's not, unfortunately, you know, everyone wants a quick fix um, or something that they can do, but it's really long journey um, to get to the point where we're, we're, I think, in a pretty good place. I was just going to follow up and ask you about in this culture where you guys are all friends, you all know each other. It You alluded to this kind of Midwest tone of the culture where people are just generally nicer than on the East Coast. And I can also say that because I grew up on the East Coast as well. And I agree with your sentiments. I was just wondering how you deal with personal accountability and error when that occurs. If for some reason, a particular person within this culture doesn't self-reflect and maybe doesn't have the insight to realize their role in that error. So that's probably really difficult, um, difficult conversations. And I'm just wondering how you help facilitate those kinds of conversations. Well, um, difficult conversations, they're going to happen no matter what. I mean, we're, we're having some problems right now with some culture with certain people. And we're trying to deal with it like as sort of, I don't want to say like as a family, but it's, it becomes more of a, we're looking at it in a holistic way. We're looking at our culture overall. Yes, I think that there are certain things that I could say, well, this is a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. Um, but we're actually right now undergoing sort of a external review of our culture because it ends up never being so simple as like that person's a troublemaker and that person needs to be brought into the office and read the riot act. Yeah, that's part of it. That's somewhat, I don't know if it's overly simplistic, but it's just not how we want to operate. We're, we're trying to look at it and no, it's, it's sort of a, like when there's a medical error and we try to say there's systems errors. I think it's a little bit the same. So how we're approaching this sort of mini crisis, I think that we're having 
is we're looking at, we're getting an external view of our culture overall. And we're interviewing all of the senior leadership within the heart center to reflect upon what they think is going well, what they think is doing, going poorly. Because I think in our way of thinking, it's, it's never a single person. You know, we all have a part to play in it. So anyway, that's, that's what we're doing. It's a little bit, I don't want to sound like I'm using that as a way not to have a difficult conversation, but that's just the way that we're approaching this one. That's a perfect concrete example of something that's going on with some issues of conflict that will inevitably arise. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our official PCICS sponsors, the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama. They are a leader in comprehensive pediatric and adult congenital care using multidisciplinary teamwork to provide the highest quality family-centered care, as well as research and clinical innovation that translates into improved patient outcomes and safety. Their center includes 20 state-of-the-art CVICU rooms, four dedicated ECMO suites, and easy access to high-risk obstetric birthing suites and regional NICU care. On average, they perform over 450 cardiac surgeries per year, including over 300 cases on cardiopulmonary bypass, approximately 10 heart transplants per year, and over 700 cardiac caths, including 100 EP cases and ablations. So, Dr. Oye, we would really love your insight on some of the CBIC luminary questions. So what do you believe is the greatest accomplishment for the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care and congenital heart surgery in the past 20 years? And what do you hope will be its greatest accomplishment in the next 20? So I'm probably second after a PCICS podcast, Jimmy. After that, I think probably the greatest event in the past 20 years has been collaboration. You guys are both relatively young, but uh, what you see with PC4 and now CNU and all of these things did not exist. And I'll tell you just from my personal viewpoint. So as many people know, I had the great honor of being one of the study chairs for the SVR trial. And so that was the, and it still is actually the only multi-center large surgical trial ever in congenital heart disease. And when I went to write this thing, so I decided I was sort of young and dumb, so that was good. And I thought that, you know, so these two shunts had come out and there was literature on both sides saying some people had better results, some people didn't. And so I was like, all right, well, I, I think that's a great question. So I'm just going to write a protocol and I'll submit it for an R01. So I wrote this huge, you know, two inch thick protocol and I don't have a PhD or a master's in study design or anything like that. I just sort of thought that's kind of what you did. So I wrote this big, long thing out. And then a couple, and I've been a very fortunate person all throughout my life, a couple serendipitous things happened. Gil Ranofsky happened to call from CHOP and said, listen, hey, I, I got this idea. Let's do this. Let's do this uh, trial. And the cardiologist that I don't really remember who it was said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And Rick's already written a protocol. And so then I started working with Gil and then Jane Newberger, too, who are just two remarkable people. So they helped me refine it. Eventually, um, Wisconsin came on board with, when Jim Tweddle was there. So the four of us decided we were going to do this trial. And we actually had just about started it. And then the next thing that happened was I was going to apply to NHLBI. As many of the people listening will know, NHLBI is one of the f institutes at the NIH where the 
review section is separate from administration. So you can actually go to the administrative side and have them review your protocol and help you rewrite it. So I sent it to there and met with Gail Pearson, who is fantastic, one of my favorite people. And so she helped me review it. And then she also happened to be managing the budgets from the NHLBI standpoint for the Pediatric Heart Network. And she said, well, what do you think about bringing this into the Pediatric Heart Network instead? So sort of another really nice happenstance. And so we eventually did, I'm kind of getting off topic here, but the idea of collaboration back then was, I mean, people told me, don't bother writing this protocol because surgeons are not going to share their results. Um, they're certainly not going to share them about Norwoods, something so high risk. And surgeons, you know, don't need a trial to tell them what the right answer is, you know, right or wrong, but never in doubt, you know. We don't need no stinking trial to tell us what the right answer is. So, but again, I mean, I think partly, partially because I was young and dumb and just wrote it anyway. Um, but that was the idea back then. That's how people felt about it. That collaboration was just, it was stupid. Don't write this protocol. I mean, you're just wasting your time because no one will do this. And there's a whole bunch of more serendipitous things that happened or got a bunch of people on board and the trial came off. But when people would ask me, so what's the most important thing about this trial? And I, from the very beginning, I said two things. I said, one, it's not about the Norwood. I said, the Norwood will come and go. And someday, 50 years from now, they're going to be like, I can't believe those barber surgeons did something like that. That is just so crazy. Now, why didn't they just, you know, grow the new heart like we do now? Let's take some stem cells out of the umbilical cord. So when the baby's born, you just put the new heart in. What is wrong with them? Uh, so I said, the things that will be enduring are we have to show that we can do this, particularly as surgeons, that we're scientists, that we believe in evidence-based medicine. And the second thing was that we have this cohort of really interesting patients that we could follow for a lifetime in, in the mold of the Boston Circuitry Rest Trial. So to me, it was the most important things were never about the shunts, but it was about collaboration. So that has a very long story to say that I think the most important thing that has happened has been collaboration. And I'm not the only person that has had this dream, like when I was just coming out into surgery and I would see like swag and all these things with cancer. And then when I first started, I'm looking, you know, childhood cancer, even from when I was a med student, has dropped mortality basically in half because every kid in the United States gets enrolled, right? And, and that's been not just my dream, but I think a lot of people's dreams to have the same thing. And so, of the previous 20 years, I think the development of collaboration and the next 20 years will be the things like CNU, you know, uh, Cardiac Networks United, which is bringing together a bunch of different databases. Why do we all collect the same stuff? We all collect demographics. We all collect this or that or surgery databases, collect the research from surgery. But we're not we're, we don't care about that, really. We want to know about the patient from start to finish, not just their cath, not just you know their ICU stay. Um, but we're interested in patient and we're interested in the diagnosis, not the surgery, right? So ultimately, in the next 20 years, I would like to see that every kid is enrolled from start to finish, you know, that it's seamless from birth all the way through adulthood. And that's how we're going to really impact outcomes, because as everybody on this podcast knows, any given institution doesn't see enough of any given lesion to make a difference. So that's my next 20-year dream, and uh, hopefully we're going to start in Michigan with a collaborative within the state of Michigan, and then start branching out from there, and so start a regional collaborative, surgical collaborative. But then there's all these other things 
that are starting to happen in the background anyway that are making it happen. CNU being probably the most exciting one now, I think we can get everybody into one common database. I really love that, especially because we had talked earlier about U.S. News and World Report. And I love <laughs> the idea that despite these institutions like U.S. News and World Report trying to kind of divide us, you're still seeing so much optimism and hope in us collaborating so that we can improve care in the next 20 years by sharing patients' data, because ultimately that will help improve everybody's care for the future. That's great. They're definitely sharing that optimism and hope for the future. The second question is, what piece of advice or comment a patient's family ever gave or said to you that was the most meaningful or impactful? I will read something that a patient's mother sent to me because I think this for me was particularly impactful. The way I think about families and the kids that we operate on, and this isn't unique to me, but I always think of it as sort of a great honor to take care of people's children. And whenever I speak to med students or undergrads interested in medicine, um, I always try to explain it this way. I said, because most of them don't have kids yet. I'm like, you don't really understand that kids are your most valuable thing in your life. And I said, you know, if I walked in in the morning of surgery, haven't never met, sometimes that's because we have a lot of referrals from all around the country, all around the world. There is times where I don't even meet the family until the morning of surgery. If I walked in, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I want you to take your entire life savings, convert it to cash and put it in like a, one of those silver <laughs> briefcases with a handcuff on it. And I will take that and I will keep it for the next six hours. Okay. You're all and all your money, all your deeds, all your stocks. And I'm promise, listen, I promise I'm going to take really good care of it. And after six hours, I'll bring it back and it will be fine. And you'd be like, what are you crazy? There's no way I am going to do that. But if you think about our parents as a surgeon, that's what they're doing. They're going to give me something that to them is far more valuable than any amount of money, their entire savings. But they're going to do that and expect me to take really good care of their kid and bring the kid back after six hours. So that's why I try to explain to like undergrads who don't really understand what it's like to have kids and what a great honor it is to be allowed to do that. And so this, I, I had just gotten from a patient of mine whose name is Trenton. And so Trenton is from somewhere out West who came to me for hypoplastic lift heart syndrome. And that was 20 years ago and almost 20 years ago. And this is an email that his mom sent me. And um, I'll try to get through this without getting choked up. But So it says, Trenton, he turns 19 today. I remember talking with you in the ICU. You gave us a 25% chance, but said you'd do everything you could, and you did. He's fantastic. He's healthy. Heart and lungs are great. This year, I get to watch him graduate high school. I get to move him to trade school in August. He's been accepted into the John Deere diesel program, and I couldn't be more excited. You gave me this. I couldn't thank you enough. And, you know, really, it's she's thanking the whole program. You know, I think the powerful thing is, is how this mother sees what happened at Michigan for giving her this entire lifetime with her son to the point where specifically the act of driving him to his school 
to her is a direct reflection upon all these things that people did for him along the way. And I, I just found that super powerful. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. It is, like you said, such a privilege and <laughs> things like that, I feel like can be so healing and um, inspirational for all the other times when it's, you know, situations that aren't exactly the outcome that we want. And just being able to share a story and have that community can be so healing and, and empowering for all the other kids that are scared, you know, and want to find some hope. So that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah I think it's really nice to, to bring it back to a, a story. Like, you know, when we talk about, you know, whatever outcomes for hypothetical heart syndrome, a bunch of numbers, but then to show the picture of Trenton uh, now, you know, I'd share the screen if this was a more, if this wasn't just a audio podcast, but to see the picture of him. And the one picture that she sent is her, like he's looking forward and she's in profile kissing him. And you can just see her eyes are closed and he's, I wouldn't say grinning and bearing it, but you can just see how, how happy she is that her happiness at graduation transcends his happiness actually at graduation. The photo was very, very powerful as well to see the, the joy uh, of his mom. And it really is, you know, it's, it's nice to reflect upon that this kid was really, really sick when he was born. And the whole team of people worked super hard to get this kid through. And now he's this great kid, you know, so. That's so they're a good reminder. Yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, the, the power of collaboration and yep. the optimism and the hope, the pursuit of knowledge that is, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about being able to give these kids the best chance to be their most full self and to give back to society and makes it so meaningful. So thank you for all that you have done to help all of us bring that into our daily lives, into our daily interactions with each other and with our institutions at a microcosm and at a big macrocosm like Michigan so that we can move forward, um, not just so our patients can have this transformative experience, but hopefully we can foster one for each other. Yep. You're, it's great, actually. I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. You know, you can only talk about the SVR trial so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. That was really inspiring. It was just amazing to hear that story. And I love the way you ended it with Trenton, because that that is why we're doing all of this. And that's why we put in the long days and the long nights. And it's great that she took the time out of a very special day to grab this picture and then to write you that letter and to send you that picture. So it just reflects how much you, a profound impact you've had, obviously, on their lives. Well, we all do. I mean, it was obviously it was, wasn't just me <laughs> operating on him, not only just in Michigan, but as a greater community helping all these kids. We are super lucky. We are super lucky to do what we do. That's for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for having me. A warm thanks again to Dr. Oye for joining us on our podcast to speak about culture. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information 
about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.